California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. You know, there is a little bit more to making a podcast than just talking into a mic and hitting publish. You need more than that. And I'm talking about a reliable hosting service so your time can be spent working on your show. You also want accurate download numbers. You want to see the audience that you're reaching. And you're going to want a web page that is simple and easy to work with. That's why I choose Blueberry. With its simple media hosting and fully integrated WordPress website, it can't get any easier. So if you host a show or if you're thinking about starting one, visit www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to give Blueberry a try for a month for free. Blueberry's support team will be right there every step of the way to help you migrate over so you won't lose any of your subscribers in the process. And if you're brand new to this, they can get your new show up and running. And with a month for free to try it out using promo code DREAM, what have you got to lose? There are a number of ways you can support California Dreaming. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can spread the word about the show. You can recommend us in podcasts and true crime fan groups. And you can leave the show a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you listen to the show on. And if you would like to go a little above and beyond, you can also support the show on our Patreon. For as little as $1 a month, you can gain access to one exclusive episode per month. And there are currently more than two dozen episodes that you can binge. So it's a pretty good deal for just a dollar a week. This week, I'd like to thank Kelly B, Maria D, Michelle S, Beth F, Julie B, Justine F, Allie N, and Kimberly W for joining Patreon. And if you're not interested in a monthly donation, you can help with a one-time contribution to the show through our PayPal using our email, californiapod at gmail.com. Every little bit helps in keeping us going and keeping us ad-free. So thank you. And before we get started, I must provide you with a warning. This episode contains graphic details involving sexual assault, torture, and murder, and may be difficult to listen to. The content of this episode is not intended for young audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. The story that we're going to discuss today is a vacation episode. I picked it because several listeners had not only listed this case as one of the ones they were interested in hearing more about on a post in our Facebook group where I asked for case recommendations, and it didn't need to be for California cases only, but also because that outside of that post on Facebook, I've been asked a couple of times if I would someday tell this story on our show. I've seen this case on a couple of podcasts, but not as many as I thought that I would. So for this vacation series episode, we are headed to Knoxville, Tennessee. Knoxville is known as the underwear capital of the world, apparently because of how the textile industry was most prominent there. And it is the third most populous city in the volunteer state behind Nashville and Memphis. Tennessee is considered to be a part of the region in the United States that we call the South. There is a little backstory related to this episode that I wanted to share with you first. It's about a man named Richard Baumgartner. He was one of three criminal court judges in Knox County, that is, up until March of 2011, when he was forced into resignation. 
You see, in his last two years on the bench as a sitting judge, it was discovered that he was feeding an addiction to prescription pills by purchasing the medications illegally, sometimes from the very convicts whose cases that he presided over. He was not only making some of these purchases during breaks and lunch during court, but he also was trading legal favors for sex. And I don't think I have to tell you what this meant for all of the cases that he presided over for at least the last two years that he was a judge. It has been said that those who worked closely with Baumgartner never really knew that he had a pill problem and were shocked to find out that it was the reason for his resignation. He ended up pleading guilty the same month that he stepped down to one count of official misconduct. It wouldn't be until towards the end of that same year that it came to light just how serious of a problem Baumgartner had, and not to mention the implications of his conduct as to how many cases were compromised as a result of it. Cases that he had presided over were going to be thrown out, and new trials were going to be ordered. The motions for new trials from countless inmates who were convicted in Baumgartner's court came flooding in. Now, Baumgartner himself was given a pretty light sentence. He entered into a drug treatment program before he pleaded guilty. He wasn't sentenced to any jail time, but rather he would be allowed to have his criminal record expunged if he met one condition, stay out of trouble. He wasn't going to be sent to jail and he wasn't going to lose his pension. But as more and more details about exactly what was going on with Baumgartner came out, the judge who sentenced him said that he would have given him a stiffer sentence if he had known the extent of his actions. The final TBI report on Baumgartner would be more than 150 pages long, and it's filled with details from witnesses who sold drugs to the judge or saw him taking the drugs, as well as details about the women that he would trade favors for sex. Baumgartner had been a judge in the criminal court system in Knoxville since 1992. He had been an alcoholic for quite some time when he eventually developed pancreatitis. He was prescribed some painkillers, and from there, he became addicted. At one point, Baumgartner told his doctor that he was addicted to prescription pills, at which point the doctor suggested that he retire. But Baumgartner did not want to. I mean, those defendants in his courtroom were his connections, right? He wasn't about to leave that behind. The Knox County District Attorney had spoken to Baumgartner sometime back in 2010 because of a concern for his overall health. Most people who worked with and around Baumgartner knew that he was dealing with numerous health problems, but it never really crossed anyone's mind that the health problems were mostly caused by and directly related to the judge's addiction to prescription meds. When the investigation into Baumgartner was made public and only parts of the report were released, but in just those few parts, it was clear that his entire world evolved around pills and sex. His whole life was being swallowed up by his addictions. He did with a lot of people with a prescription drug addiction do. He shopped around for doctors in an effort to obtain multiple prescriptions for oxycodone, hydrocodone, Xanax, and Valium. After a while, the prescriptions simply weren't enough to feed his habit. So he began shopping for pills from the very criminal defendants that he had convicted in his courtroom, as well as some of their friends who were able to supply him with what he wanted. 
And one of those people that he solicited for drugs and sex was a woman named Deanna Castleman. She had actually successfully completed drug court, which Baumgartner had ordered her to attend. When she was questioned by Baumgartner, she revealed that she did indeed provide the married judge, who was nearly double her age, with a steady supply of prescription pills and sex, and sometimes it would happen during court recesses. Not only that, there were multiple occasions where she engaged in sexual activity in his chambers. In return, Baumgartner would take care of the bills that she owed, he would give her money, or help her with bail if she were arrested. He'd even gone so far as to provide her with a false drug test result when she actually tested positive. Also in the report, it said that Baumgartner had paid Deanna Castleman numerous visits when she was in the hospital sometime in 2009. Hospital staff reported that they had seen the judge come and visit her during breaks in court, and they remembered this because it was a highly publicized televised trial. During recesses, he would be in the hospital. And nurses said after the judge would leave, they noticed that Deanna seemed to be under the influence of something. Eventually, some prescription pills were discovered in her possession in her hospital room. Baumgartner was never charged with any of the dealings related to Deanna Castleman. His misconduct charge was a result of Baumgartner purchasing pills from a person who had been convicted in his court, a man named Chris Gibson. Gibson reported that he sold Baumgartner pills every couple of days from his house. He also reported that he knew that the judge was burning through his retirement savings, and he corroborated Castleman's claim that he conducted drug buys during courtroom breaks. Now, whether or not county officials knew that Baumgartner had a serious drug problem isn't clear, but nobody reported him, and it seemed as though most people thought the judge's demeanor was directly related to health problems and illnesses. There were days when he was so spaced out, his mind was completely muddled up to a point where his assistant, a woman named Jennifer Judy, would have to cancel proceedings and set new dates for court hearings. There is no indication that she ever reported anything related to the judge's behavior or any concerns that she may have had to anyone either. Jennifer Judy knew that the judge struggled with chronic alcoholism in the past, and to her knowledge, he had been treated for it and it was no longer an issue. But as time wore on, she did notice that there was something about Baumgartner. It appeared that he was not improving health-wise. And there were numerous occasions when he was barely even able to move, much less work or talk. County prosecutors were also able to tell that something was wrong with the judge. There was an occasion where a couple of prosecutors were driving from a jury selection proceeding that was taking place in Nashville and they were headed back to Knoxville when they noticed the judge driving his car erratically, going in and out of lanes, to a point where they attempted to call his cell phone in order to persuade him to pull off the side of the road. Baumgartner, as I said, resigned as a result of the investigation into his misconduct, and he did not fight the decision for his disbarment. But his legal troubles weren't over, and the issue at hand ultimately was Baumgartner's ability to hold on to his pension for life. He had committed so many felonies as a sitting judge, it just didn't sit well with many people. So at the state level, Baumgartner had been dealt with. He was given no jail time. He was able to even have the misconduct conviction removed from his record, and he was able to keep his pension. 
But at the federal level, they had other ideas. On May 15, 2012, a federal grand jury indicted Baumgartner on seven felony counts related to concealing a federal drug trafficking conspiracy for a little more than a year, from June of 2009 through October of 2010, while he was still a sitting judge. He was convicted in November of 2012 on five of the seven counts. He motioned for a new trial, but that was denied. He appealed his conviction, but only one of the five counts was overturned. The other four were upheld. Baumgartner was sentenced to six months in federal prison on April 10, 2013. And because of this felony conviction, he lost his retirement pension. He reported to prison to begin his sentence the following month. In January of 2018, the disgraced judge died at the age of 70 of natural causes. His toxicology results indicated that he had no drugs in his system. So as you can imagine, all of the cases that Richard Baumgartner presided over, all of the convictions that were won in his courtroom, all of them were thrown into question as a result of his misconduct during the last two years of his time on the bench. And that includes the case that we are going to discuss here today in this 143rd episode of California Dreaming's Vacation Series, The Tale of Murder and Torture on Chipman Street. The story we are about to embark upon today will take us through a journey of seven trials and seemingly endless sadness and heartache. Most of our stories are incredibly sad. Our hearts break as we become familiar with the victims and the families, and we see and feel the pain that they've had to endure over the unimaginable loss of a loved one. This is a case that shook the southern city of Knoxville, Tennessee to its core, back when this crime took place in 2007, over the course of at least a couple of days. But as horrifying and disturbing as this crime was, it really did not garner national headlines. And I looked around for it in the usual places, Dateline, 48 Hours, 2020, but I came up empty. Most of the information that I was able to gather to piece together for this came from the local news there in Knoxville on knoxvillenews.com and from court papers. However, I remember this story, as did several of you in the Facebook group who requested that we discuss the story in a vacation episode. So, here we are. 21-year-old Shannon Christian and 23-year-old Christopher Newsom, they met and began dating in November of 2006. Unfortunately, there is not a great deal of information about the couple that can be found online beyond a few basic facts. Shannon was born April 29, 1985, in Texas. She lived with her family in Louisiana for a while, eventually ending up in Knoxville in 1997. She was a student at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville and in her final year, majoring in sociology. Christopher had graduated from Halls High School, and he was a standout on their baseball team. On the evening of Saturday, January 6, 2007, Shannon and Christopher had gone out to eat 
or they had plans to go out to eat. Then they had plans to attend a birthday party. The party was for a friend of Shannon's. I read one report that Shannon was somewhat upset with Christopher because he was taking his time getting ready for the party. I'm not exactly clear about what was going on between the couple, but they had apparently had some sort of a minor quarrel. It didn't seem like anything too big because Christopher eventually made his way up to Shannon's car window as she was seated in her Toyota SUV, a forerunner. It was parked outside the Washington Ridge apartment complex where her best friend lived. Christopher was trying to smooth things over with Shannon. He was leaning in and giving her a kiss as he stood next to her driver's side door. By this time, the sun had already set. And the couple never saw what was about to happen. While they were talking or making up, a man named Eric Boyd, at the time in 2007, he was 35 years old. He drove his vehicle into the parking lot of the apartment complex that Shannon and Christopher were parked in front of. In the car with him, he had two passengers. At the time, 25-year-old Lamarikis Davidson and 24-year-old Latalvis Cobbins. Davidson and Cobbins were half-brothers. It's been said that they were out looking for someone to carjack. That's when the trio spotted Shannon and Christopher and decided to pull into the apartment's parking lot with the intentions of stealing Shannon's SUV, so they claimed. Boyd and Davidson exited their vehicle while Cobbins stayed with the car. Both men, armed with guns, made their way towards the couple. However, before they had a chance to get Shannon and Christopher to get out of the way so they could steal their car, they noticed headlights of another vehicle coming towards them. This caused Boyd and Davidson to panic, so instead of ordering Christopher to move away from the car and forcing Shannon to get out of the car, they shoved both of them into it instead and sped off. From there, it's believed that Christopher and Shannon were tied up in the back of the SUV with items that the assailants were able to find in the vehicle. Christopher was placed in the back of the SUV, bound and face down. Shannon was placed on top of him. What would happen to the couple over the course of the next several hours and couple days, because how long all of what they did took and who exactly did what, the truth of it all has never really been clear. But one thing is for certain, Shannon and Christopher suffered horribly. It's hard to even imagine a person much less several persons, being able to do what was done to the couple following their abduction. And what makes it even more puzzling is why. If this was meant to be a carjacking, how in the world did this end up the way that it did? We like to know answers to questions like this, because not knowing, especially in this case, is utterly terrifying. Because you're going to come to find that there really is no clear motive. There was no connection between Shannon and Christopher and their attackers. And the randomness and the brutality is the stuff nightmares are made of. I mentioned earlier how the evening was going for Shannon and Christopher. So what was going on with the people who noticed them and decided that they wanted to steal that SUV? 
Well, apparently, Lamaricus Davidson was having a bad night. I would say he was having a pretty bad time in life in general. But on this particular night, something inside him was reaching a breaking point. He was 25 years old. He didn't have a job. He didn't have a car. He had no money. And really, there wasn't anything going right in his life to look forward to. The only thing he would say later on that he did for a living was sell drugs. And apparently, that wasn't going well either. And on this day, Saturday, January 6, 2007, his girlfriend, a woman named Daphne Sutton, she had had enough of Davidson and ended their relationship. There was more to Davidson's criminal history than simply being a drug dealer. At the time that our story takes place, he was on parole for carjacking. In addition to that, he was suspected of being involved in numerous robberies that had occurred just days prior to Shannon and Christopher's abduction. So from the sounds of it, this guy was out that night hunting for victims. Was the kidnapping really ever supposed to be a part of that? I'm not quite sure. On the surface, it doesn't sound like it was. It was portrayed as a last-minute panic decision. But what makes this night different than the other nights that Davidson was out committing robberies and whatnot is the fact that his girlfriend, Daphne, had broke up with him. He had a lot of other things going on too, but he was very angry, really angry about that. And I could easily see that being a motivating factor in what would ultimately happen to Shannon and Christopher, like he just snapped. But you see, Davidson isn't alone in this. In the end, there would be a total of five people who would become involved in this crime. And they all on some level were involved. Even though Davidson was upset and angry over his breakup, and that could have been a triggering event for him, it doesn't explain how or why everyone else decided to join in on this crime. I can't exactly put my finger on a reason that makes sense, other than these people didn't want to not participate, like a gang mentality. You know, people do things that they would in a group that they normally wouldn't do on their own. That sounds kind of like a weak reason, but I don't know. Sometimes I just think maybe we're just not meant to know. In the week leading up to the kidnapping, Davidson's brother, Latalvis Cobbins, had arrived in Knoxville from Kentucky to stay with him at his house. Accompanying Cobbins from Kentucky was his friend, George Thomas, and Thomas's friend, Vanessa Coleman. Now, some reports have stated that Vanessa Coleman was George Thomas's girlfriend, but according to court documents, that was not the case. His girlfriend was a woman named Stacy Lawson, and she was from Lebanon, Kentucky, and she was the one who drove Thomas, Cobbins, and Coleman from Kentucky to Knoxville. I know that there are a lot of names to remember here, so I will periodically remind you throughout the story the role that each person has in this case as we go along here. So for now, we've got four people staying in Davidson's home, which is located on Chipman Street. Davidson is the one who rents the home. His brother is Cobbins. His friend is Thomas. And Thomas's friend is Coleman. And all of them were not doing very well. 
None of them were employed. None of them had any source of income, perhaps with the exception of selling drugs or committing other crimes. Nobody had any money. Nobody had any means of transportation. Vanessa Coleman did come from a pretty decent, hardworking family. She could have turned to them, but she chose not to, opting to follow Thomas and Cobbins to Knoxville instead. As for Cobbins, Thomas, and Coleman, whatever brought them to Knoxville isn't quite clear. My best guess is they really had no place else to go, and they went to crash at Davidson's house. It only took Davidson a few days to become fed up with his half-brother and his friends who were all pretty much freeloading. It reached a point where Davidson ended up lashing out at his own girlfriend, Daphne. As a result of that, she ended their relationship with him on January 5th, 2007. That was when Davidson began to try and come up with a plan to get some money and to try to deal with his financial problems that were now being compounded by the fact that he was dumped by his girlfriend on top of everything else. So the following day, Saturday, January 6, 2007, Davidson had come up with a plan to commit another carjacking. And from this point in the case, he was and is considered to be the ringleader of this whole thing. He solicited the help of his brother, Cobbins, as well as a friend named Eric Boyd, who had a car. Now, at the time, Boyd was 35 years old, and he was at least 10 up to 12 years older than everyone else involved in the story. So these three got together looking for someone to carjack. According to Cobbins, he did not want any part of this. He did not want to go along. He thought it was a bad idea from the beginning. He would later say that they began arguing about it. But Davidson insisted that he needed to do this. He needed to carjack somebody. He needed to get some money. Whatever the case, whether Cobbins was into it or not, it doesn't matter because he went along. The following is a detailed timeline of the events beginning January 6th through January 10th based on court documents related to this case. As I said at the onset, Shannon and Christopher planned on having dinner the evening of January 6th. Afterwards, they had plans to spend the rest of the night at a birthday party for one of Shannon's friends. That afternoon, Shannon had gone over to another friend's place, a woman named Kara Soward, and she lived at the Washington Ridge Apartments and they were there to get ready for the party. At approximately 8 p.m., Kara left for the party while Shannon stayed behind at her place to wait for Christopher to get there. At 8.47 p.m., Christopher withdrew $100 from an ATM. Then at about 9 p.m., he dropped his friend Josh Anderson off at the party. He let his friends know that he and Shannon were going to grab a bite to eat first, and then they would be back to the party afterwards. Kara called Shannon a little while later and told her that Christopher was on his way. The party was about a 10-minute drive from the Washington Ridge Apartments. At approximately 10 p.m., Christopher and Shannon's friends realized that they had not yet arrived at the party, so they attempted to call and text them but received no answer. About an hour later, two of Christopher's friends went over to the Washington Ridge Apartments to look for him and Shannon, only to discover that his vehicle was still in the parking lot of the apartments, but Shannon's 2005 Toyota 4Runner was missing. Christopher and Shannon would never arrive at the birthday party. 
Their friends never saw or spoke to either one of them again. Sometime between 9, 10 p.m. and 11 p.m., Shannon and Christopher had been abducted from the parking lot of the apartments, and their vehicle was driven over to Lamarcus Davidson's apartment, located on the 2300 block of Chipman Street. At approximately 12.30 in the morning the following day, this would now be Sunday, January 7th, a man named Xavier Jenkins arrived at his place of work, which was Waste Connections, also located on Chipman Street, next door to Davidson's home. Mr. Jenkins parked nearby the Waste Connections building outside the company's gated parking lot to wait for a co-worker to arrive so they could go into work together. From the location where Mr. Jenkins had parked, he had a clear view of Davidson's house. He also noticed Shannon's SUV parked on the street in front of the house. He noted that the porch light was on, and from what he could see from his vantage point, Davidson's home seemed pretty busy for that time of night. Mr. Jenkins comes to work each morning, the same time, same shift, and he had never seen a car like Shannon's parked in front of that house before that night. So Mr. Jenkins decided to go to a nearby convenience store while he continued to wait. And when he returned, he parked his vehicle again and continued to wait, still right across the street from Davidson's house. At approximately 12.50 a.m., Mr. Jenkins saw Shannon's SUV being driven away from where it had been parked, and it was headed in the direction where he had been parked. As the vehicle drove past him, Jenkins said that it slowed down for a moment which enabled him to clearly see that there were four African-American men in it. The driver, who was wearing a hoodie, made eye contact with Mr. Jenkins and gave him a dirty look. At about 12.33 a.m., Shannon called her dad on her cell phone and told him that she had a change of plans. She had originally decided that she was going to stay the night at the house where the birthday party was being hosted, but she changed her mind and would be coming home instead. She told her dad she'd be there sometime between 2 and 2.30. Phone records later revealed that this call pinged near a Cherry Street cell phone tower, which is in the general vicinity of Davidson's home. And later on, we would find out that Shannon was being forced to make this phone call in order to establish an alibi. At about 1.45 in the morning, a neighbor named Jerome Arnold, whose home was located on Chipman Street about a block away from Davidson's. He was up watching TV when he heard what he described as three fairly evenly spaced pops coming from the direction where the railroad tracks were located near that section of Chipman Street. I looked on maps and it appears that it is sort of a checkerboard of houses and industrial type buildings. The railroad tracks were located across the street from Davidson's house and behind the businesses and warehouses. Around 3.30 in the morning, Kara Soward had returned to her home at the Washington Ridge Apartments. She immediately noticed that Christopher's truck was still in the parking lot and that Shannon's vehicle was not there. She went to her apartment unit and the front door was locked and the things that Shannon had brought with her to stay the night were not inside the apartment either. Three hours later, at 6.30 a.m., Mr. Jenkins had come back to the Waste Connections building after completing his route. 
This time he noticed that Shannon's vehicle was now parked facing the train tracks in front of the Waste Connections building. He also noticed that the vehicle had an orange University of Tennessee Power T sticker on the window. To him, the vehicle appeared as though it did not belong in that neighborhood. This was somewhat of a seedy area, and there aren't very many late model SUVs like that around, much less with a University of Tennessee sticker on it. To him, it just felt really out of place. He approached the vehicle and peered inside, but saw that nobody was in it. At 7.45 a.m., a man named Roy Thurman arrived at his place of work, which was a sandblasting company, also located on this section of Chipman Street. As he parked his vehicle and got out, he noticed some plumes of smoke rising over from where the train tracks were located. By late morning, word was spreading amongst Christopher's and Shannon's family and friends that the couple had failed to show up for the birthday party, they failed to show up at home, and nobody had any idea where the couple were or what happened to them. For the remainder of the morning into the early afternoon of January 7th, Shannon's friend Kara and Shannon's mother, Deanna Christian, repeatedly attempted to call Shannon's phone but received no answer. Then that afternoon, Deanna received a call from Shannon's place of work to check in on her because she had failed to show up. It was then that panic set in for Deanna. She began calling local hospitals. She got in touch with Christopher's family and as many of Shannon's friends as she possibly could to try and figure out what happened to Shannon and where she might be. After all those attempts failed to find her daughter, Deanna contacted the Knox County Sheriff's Department and reported her missing. Chris's parents were doing the same thing. They were calling hospitals, Chris's friends, but they too came up with no answers. So they too filed a missing persons report that same day. At the time of their disappearances, Shannon and Christopher both still lived at home with their parents. At approximately 12.20 p.m. that afternoon of Sunday, January 7th, an employee with the Norfolk Southern Railroad named J.D. Ford made a gruesome discovery. He found the badly burned body of Christopher Newsom. He was laying near the train tracks, very close in proximity to Lamarcus Davidson's home. Christopher had been shot three times. His hands were bound by the wrist behind his back. His eyes were covered with a bandana. A sock was stuffed into his mouth. His head was wrapped in a sweatshirt. His feet were bound together, and he had on no socks or shoes. When Shannon's family had reported her missing and had requested the help of local law enforcement in searching for their daughter, they were told that authorities would not assist them in their search that they would have to do it on their own. So Shannon's parents started by contacting their cell phone provider to find the location where her phone last pinged. They learned that that last ping was off the Cherry Street Tower. So that evening, Shannon's and Christopher's family and friends went to that area and began searching street by street. This was a section of town that Shannon nor Christopher were ever known to visit for any reason, according to their families. In the early morning hours of Monday, January 8, 2007, sometime between 1.30 and 2 a.m., those searching for Shannon and Christopher discovered Shannon's SUV parked on the corner of Chipman Street and Glider Avenue, just about a block away from Davidson's home. 
The University of Tennessee sticker, along with a North Face sticker, had been removed from the rear window. Police were called and shortly thereafter arrived at the location where the SUV was parked. Missing from the vehicle was a bag of clothing, including a pair of Glow brand jeans. It's an important detail later on, so keep that in mind. This bag of clothing were items that Shannon was planning to donate, and her parents knew that the bag had been in her car and noted that it was now missing. Also missing were Shannon's overnight bag and everything that she had had in it to stay the night at her friend's apartment. Both front seats were pushed back as far as they could go, and the floorboard on the back seat was covered in mud. A crumpled up pack of Newport cigarettes was also found in the back. This is important because neither Shannon nor Christopher smoked this brand of cigarette. The SUV was photographed, the contents of it were inventoried, then it was towed to police impound. A neighbor named Sandra Bible, she lived on the corner of Chipman Street and Glider Avenue. She was questioned about the vehicle, and she said when she went outside around midnight on Sunday, going into Monday, she did not see the SUV parked there, nor had she ever seen it prior to that night. Knoxville Police Department forensic evidence technician Dan Crenshaw processed the SUV for fingerprints while it was still parked at the scene. The outside of the vehicle appeared to have been wiped clean. He did not find any prints. Later that night on Monday, January 8th at 11 p.m., Crenshaw came to work for the night shift. From inside the vehicle, he collected a bank envelope to process it for fingerprints. Early the next morning on Tuesday, January 9th, around 2.45 in the morning, Crenshaw had found a fingerprint on the envelope and he identified it as belonging to Lamaricus Davidson. He was also able to determine that Davidson's residence was located on Chipman Street and was in very close proximity to where Shannon's SUV had been discovered, as well as where Christopher's charred body had been left. A few minutes after making this discovery, Crenshaw emailed Knoxville Police Investigator Todd Childress, as well as several others, to let them know that he made a fingerprint identification on an envelope found in Shannon's SUV, that that fingerprint belonged to Davidson, and that Davidson lived on Chipman Street. That same morning around 7 a.m., to help confirm Crenshaw's findings, a second evidence technician named Tim Shade also processed the fingerprint and was able to confirm that it was indeed Davidson's print. While Crenshaw was waiting on that fingerprint verification, he decided to drive by the Chipman Street address that he had on file for Davidson to check if perhaps he might be able to see or hear anything so they could possibly take some action and gain entry into the home, but the home appeared quiet. As far as he could see, there was no activity at the house. That same morning, Tuesday, January 9th, after the second verification of Davidson's print was made by Tim Shade, police investigator Childress began to look into Davidson's background and information that they had on file about him. He found numerous things, including a warrant for his arrest for a failure to appear in court. From there, Childress began to develop an affidavit for a search warrant for Davidson's Chipman Street home. However, when he went to print the affidavit, he was in such a rush that he didn't realize that he printed this on a letter-sized piece of paper instead of a legal-sized piece of paper. And in doing so, the signature line of the affidavit was omitted. And I only point this out because it would later become somewhat of an important issue in the appeal stages of this case, and it continues to be an issue to this day. 
From there, Investigator Childress went to court sometime between 10.30 in the morning and noon. We're still on January 9th. And he appeared before Knox County Judge Tony Stansbury to request a warrant to search Davidson's home. However, Childress did not sign the affidavit, but instead he signed the search warrant on the line marked Officer to Whom Warrant is Delivered for Execution. The judge reviewed the affidavit but failed to notice that Childress had not signed it. Regardless, Childress swore to the truthfulness of the contents of the affidavit, and just before 1 p.m. on the 9th, Judge Stanbury signed the search warrant. At 1.39 p.m., officers executing the search warrant entered Mr. Davidson's home. After a check of the house, they found that nobody was at home at that time. Three minutes later, at 1.42 p.m., Sergeant Keith DeBeau noticed a misshapen 32-gallon plastic garbage can in the kitchen. Thinking that there might be somebody hiding inside the trash can, he drew his weapon and carefully lifted the lid. He immediately noticed a human arm that was partially covered with some fabric. He touched the arm and found it to be cold to the touch, at which point he realized the garbage can contained a dead body. The dead body would later be identified as 21-year-old Shannon Christian. At 2.04 p.m., Dr. Darinka Polchan arrived at the Chipman Street home to oversee the removal of Shannon's body. By 3.10 p.m., the garbage can still containing Shannon's body, which was wrapped in a tarp and secured with some plastic ties, was removed from the home. Officers conducting a search of the home found Shannon's iPod, which was personalized, on top of some storage containers in Davidson's bedroom. But they left the iPod in place for now. The search of the home was completed by 3.30 p.m., and officers began leaving the scene. However, Investigator Childress advised several officers to hang back at the request of the Knox County Attorney General's office as they wanted to ensure that the location was secure and that nobody entered the home. Investigator Childress went back to prepare a second affidavit for an additional search warrant with more information that he now had as a result of the first warrant, including the fact that they had found Shannon's body inside the home. He signed it correctly this time, and went back to court before Judge Chuck Cerny. The judge signed the warrant at 7.25 p.m., and by 7.55, officers were back at Davidson's home and entered for a second time. The search lasted until approximately 1.30 in the morning the following day, Wednesday, January 10, 2007. And in the second search, officers discovered various items that belonged to both Shannon and Christopher, including clothing Shannon had in her car, pictures that had been kept inside her vehicle, her gray purse that she was seen carrying the last time she was seen, her pink high heels, her iPod that I mentioned earlier that was inscribed with the words, Shannon Christian, Mom and Dad, we love you. Two baseball caps that belonged to Christopher, including the one that he was last seen wearing that past Saturday night, Shannon's camera, Christopher's driver's license, a pay stub from Shannon's place of employment, Shannon's mom's blockbuster video card, a music CD, and Shannon's personal toiletry items that she had in her overnight bag. Okay, so who is Lamari Kiss Davidson and what is going on here at his house? Well, as of the day this all started, January 6, 2007, Davidson was a 25-year-old convicted felon. He was unemployed, he had no means of transportation, 
His only source of income was selling drugs, though was he successful at even doing that? It doesn't seem so, as he himself regularly used both cocaine and marijuana. So it's likely he's consuming his own inventory and thereby not really making all that much money. The house that he lived in on the 2300 block of Chipman Street was a rental. And at the time our story takes place, he was plagued with numerous financial and personal problems that were piling up in the days leading up to the kidnapping. He was six days past due on his rent. He owed money to a woman named Ethel Freeman from whom he purchased some furniture on a payment plan. And his girlfriend that I had mentioned earlier, Daphne Sutton, she'd actually lived at the home with Davidson up until December 26, 2006. Their relationship was falling apart, so she moved herself and her belongings out on that day. However, they did have a confrontation the day before Shannon and Christopher went missing, at which point she had apparently ended their relationship for good. Sometime either by the very end of December of 2006 or the beginning of January of 2007, that is when George Thomas, Latalvis Cobbins, and Vanessa Coleman were driven by Thomas's girlfriend, Stacy Lawson, from Kentucky to go live with Davidson at the Chipman Street house. And just like Davidson, the three of them did not have jobs, they had no money, and they had no means of transportation. Stacy Lawson would later report that when she dropped them off, she went inside the home for a short period of time, and she noticed that Davidson had an assault rifle and two revolvers. One of the revolvers was black, the others was silver. And she knew that Thomas, Cobbins, and Coleman all smoked Newport cigarettes, the brand of the package that was found inside Shannon's SUV. Now, Davidson's girlfriend, or recently ex-girlfriend Daphne Sutton, she had returned to the Chipman Street home a couple of times since she moved out. The specific reasons for those visits is not clear, but it seemed as though Davidson was attempting a reconciliation. During her last visit to his home, which was Friday, January 5th, they had a heated argument. Following the argument, Daphne left the home, but when she tried to drive away, her car wouldn't start. So she walked to a gas station and called her friend Cassie Suttles and asked her for a ride. Daphne left her car parked on Chipman Street near Davidson's home and left when her friend came to pick her up. A moment ago, I mentioned that Davidson owed money to a woman named Ethel Freeman for furniture that she had sold him. Davidson had become acquainted with Ethel through a mutual friend, and at the end of December 2006, Davidson, Thomas, and Cobbins helped Ethel move into a unit at the Washington Ridge Apartments. At that time, she had given Davidson some bed linens, a comforter, pillow shams, some curtains, and she sold him some pieces of furniture. He agreed to pay her in biweekly payments in the amount of $75 to $100 each payment, and he promised he would bring her a payment on the night of Saturday, January 6th. She was expecting him to be there sometime after 10 p.m., but he failed to show up. Ethel ended up going to bed, and when she woke up sometime in the middle of the night, she called Davidson's cell phone. Later on, phone records would determine that she made this phone call at 3.51 a.m. Ethel noted that Davidson did not sound like his usual self. He seemed very busy and a little flustered. His voice was in such a way that he sounded like he was in a big hurry to do something. And he explained to her that he wasn't able to come by because he got busy. 
So backing up a little bit to Sunday night, just a few hours after the kidnapping, at 2.10 a.m., Christopher's cell phone was used to call a man named Jason Minot. Now, Jason Minot did not know anyone involved in this case. He didn't know Davidson, Cobbins, Thomas, Coleman, or Boyd, nor did he know Shannon or Christopher either. His phone number was actually almost identical to the phone number belonging to a friend of Davidson's estranged girlfriend, Daphne Sutton, named Taylor Shaddix. Those calls from Chris's phone were made by Davidson. Then, starting around 2.30 in the morning, he began calling another friend of Daphne's, a woman named Kayla Trout. However, she did not answer any of his calls, though she did speak with him about 12 hours later, sometime between 3 and 4 p.m., on the afternoon of Sunday, January 7th. Davidson was trying to get in touch with Daphne because he had some clothes that he wanted to give her. So, Dreamers, are you picking up on what's going on here? I'm sensing that Lamaricus Davidson had become pretty desperate to try and smooth things over with Daphne and to win back her affections. Aside from his relationship being on the rocks with his girlfriend, he also had Ethel Freeman calling him about the money that he owed her. He still owed money for his rent for the month of January. He had a warrant out for his arrest. As a matter of fact, a man who worked for Davidson's landlord, a man named Jane Mitchell, he had gone over to the house early in January to collect the rent, but Davidson told him to come back in a few days. By the time James Mitchell returned to the house, it had already been cordoned off by police. On top of all of that, Davidson's got three people freeloading in his house, and they certainly aren't helping with the rent. He's under all this pressure, and the only thing that he can think of is to commit a crime like carjacking, take everything that he can from the victim that he chooses, to try to sell, trade, or barter, or whatever he can do, and to get even with everyone that he owed money to, and to try to win back Daphne. I get the levels of desperation that he was reaching, but what I don't understand is what ended up happening to Shannon and Christopher in the aftermath of the carjack. They could have just taken the car, robbed them, and been on in their way. But for whatever reason, things just spun so violently out of control that it boggles the mind to try and make sense of this. A witness named Darren Williams was headed to Davidson's Chipman Street house to buy some cocaine on the weekend of the kidnapping, either on January 6th or 7th. He wasn't sure which night, but it was after dark. While he was at a stop sign, he noticed a vehicle coming towards him in the opposite direction. The driver of that oncoming vehicle, who turned out to be Davidson, began honking the horn. Because Darren Williams did not recognize the car, he kept going towards Davidson's house. By the time he arrived, that vehicle had turned around and come back to meet him. Davidson had got out of the car, as did the two passengers he had with him. All of them were wearing black hoodies and the hoodies were pulled over their heads. Davidson told Darren that he did not have any drugs to sell him right then. Darren later identified the vehicle that they were driving as Shannon's 2005 Toyota 4Runner. Darren came back the next afternoon, and when Davidson came out to greet him, he asked him if he noticed the helicopters flying around. They found a body over there by the railroad tracks. At this time, Darren noticed Shannon's forerunner parked across the street from Davidson's house. Davidson told him he bought the car for $2,500, but Darren didn't believe that. He, first of all, didn't believe that Davidson had $2,500, but he also knew that the car was worth much, much more than that. 
Around noon on Sunday, January 7th, Ethel Freeman had driven over to Davidson's house and parked in front, hoping to catch him and collect the money that he owed her. As she waited, she spoke briefly with a neighbor who was a friend of hers for a few minutes. When they were done talking, Ethel decided to leave. She did not think she would find Davidson at home. However, she had to go a different way because the streets had been blocked off because of the discovery of a burned body near the railroad tracks. When she arrived at home, Ethel did receive a call from Davidson, and he promised that he would be there around 3 p.m. to pay her the money that he owed her. But he never did. He never showed up. He never answered her calls. He never paid her any money. Also on this same day, Sunday, January 7th, Daphne, Davidson's ex-girlfriend, had found out from some of her friends that he had been trying to get in touch with her. Daphne spoke to Davidson a few times on the phone throughout the day. Then later that evening, he told Daphne that he had some clothes for her. He asked her to come over to his house and pick up the clothes, but to wait about 30 minutes before she headed over. At this point, Daphne began to suspect that Davidson was with another woman at the house, so she and her friends did not wait the 30 minutes but drove over immediately. It only took her about five minutes to get there after they had ended their phone conversation. When she arrived, Davidson was standing by the front door. She went into the house and saw Cobbin sitting in a chair near the kitchen, and Thomas was sitting in a chair in the living room. Daphne wanted to get into the bathroom to pick up a makeup bag that she had left behind, but as she walked from the front bedroom towards the bathroom, she saw that the door was closed. Davidson told her that Vanessa Coleman was in there. So she tried to access the bathroom from a second door, which led to the kitchen. Davidson stopped her and grabbed her by the arm and told her, this is my house, what do you think you're doing? Then he escorted her towards the front door, at which point he gave her a large Sears bag full of clothes and he tried to give her some money. Daphne turned down the money, but she took the clothes. When she arrived back at her friend's apartment, Daphne realized that the clothing were used. She called Davidson and demanded an explanation, and he told her he had purchased the clothing at a used clothing store and thought that she would like them. Well, she did not. Inside this bag were various clothing items, including a red skirt, a pink blouse, a pair of glow jeans, and a ring. Daphne gave the glow jeans to her friend and then called Davidson and told him to come pick up the rest of the clothes, which he did. When Davidson arrived to pick up the bag of clothing, he was driving Shannon's SUV. In the late hours of Sunday the 7th, or in the early morning hours of Monday the 8th, Davidson called Daphne and asked her to come pick him up. He told her that he was locked out of his house and that his brother, Cobbins, had the keys. Daphne drove her friend's car over to pick him up. He was waiting inside her car, which was still parked there, broken down. They went back to her friend's apartment, where they all spent the night. Ethel Freeman went back again on the morning of January 8th to try once again to collect the money she was owed from Davidson. But when she got there, the house no longer appeared as though anyone was living there. So she decided not to leave a note. She then noticed police officers on the street looking around. She figured something was going on, so she left. In the meantime, Daphne and Davidson stayed at her friend's apartment on Sunday night and Monday night. And then on Tuesday, Daphne's mother called her and told her that police had found a girl's body in Davidson's house. 
Davidson was nearby listening to his ex-girlfriend receive this news. He became agitated. His eyes were fixated, wide open, and he began to beg Daphne to believe him when he said he had nothing to do with it, that it was all his brother's doing. Daphne told him he needed to leave, but he asked if he could stay until after dark. Not long afterwards, Daphne discovered that Davidson had lied to her about being locked out of his house. He had his keys with him in his jacket pocket, along with the black revolver. She also noticed that he was wearing a pair of Nikes that looked to be too small for him. She asked him about the shoes, and he insisted he bought them. Later on that evening, Daphne dropped Davidson off nearby the Ridgebrook apartment complex located on Reynolds Avenue. From there, he had found a place to hide out. On the afternoon of Thursday, January 11, 2007, five days after Shannon and Christopher's abduction, the Knoxville Police Department Special Operations Team arrested Davidson, who was hiding in a vacant house on Reynolds Avenue, and he was being assisted by Eric Boyd. Among the items that were found with him were Chris's size 9.5 Nikes and a 22 caliber revolver. Davidson was questioned that afternoon by ATF agent Forrest Webb and Knoxville PD investigator Ryan Flores. They advised him of his rights, at which time he signed a waiver. From there, the questioning began, and Davidson would provide at least five different versions of what happened from January 6th through the 8th. First, he said he didn't know anything about what happened at the house. He said he left his house on Friday and didn't go back. Next, he claimed that his brother, Cobbins, appeared at his house with Shannon's SUV, but he never saw Shannon or Christopher. From there, he said he used Shannon's vehicle to make some drug deliveries. Then, when he found out that there was a body near the train tracks, he went back to the SUV and wiped it down to remove his fingerprints. When he was about to come back to his house, he received a phone call informing him that police were down the street from his house, so he walked away and up the street and waited for his girlfriend to pick him up. All of this, he said, happened on Sunday night. Davidson's next version of what happened was that he was home all day on Saturday, and around 5 p.m. he began selling drugs from his house. He went to bed and woke up early the next morning around 4 or 5 when Daphne called him to tell him that a dead body was found near the train tracks. He had her come and pick him up, but before she did that, he wiped his fingerprints from Shannon's SUV. Davidson said he stayed at Daphne's house on Monday and Tuesday. He said he did not know who Shannon and Christopher were, but he did say that his half-brother, the Talvis Cobbins, told him that George Thomas killed Christopher. The next version of Davidson's story went something like this. He said that Cobbins and Thomas had kidnapped Christopher and Shannon from some apartments and brought them back to his house. They took Christopher's wallet and money, and then sometime around 10 p.m. on Saturday night, Cobbins and Thomas arrived at his house and told him that they had carjacked some people and they had them inside the vehicle. Davidson said he went outside and looked in the car and saw Shannon and Christopher tied up in the back seat. He claimed that he wanted no part of it, so he left. He walked down the street and smoked some marijuana, and when he came back to his house about 20 minutes later, Shannon was inside his house. When she saw him, he claimed that she told him that she didn't want to die. Davidson said that Christopher was never brought inside his house. He added that after Cobbins and Thomas showed up at his house with Shannon and Christopher, that Cobbins and Thomas left with the couple. 
They were gone for less than 20 minutes, returning only with Shannon. When Shannon came into his house, he said she was wearing a hoodie, but her eyes were not covered. This caused Mr. Davison to worry that she had seen him and would be able to identify him. So he left his house, drove away in her car to sell more drugs. When he came back, he parked the vehicle down the street from his house. He wiped the vehicle clean of his prints and went back inside. He said he did not go any further than the living room and he did not see Shannon. Eventually, Davison admitted that he saw Shannon sitting on a bed in his house and she told him again that she did not want to die. He denied having sex with Shannon, and he said he did not know if anyone had sex with her, and further he said his DNA would not be found anywhere on her body. I do want to say that somewhere in one of these versions of Davidson's story, he claimed that Shannon and Christopher had come to his house to buy drugs, which was not true, and some years later would lead to some changes in the law as to what a criminal defendant can say about a victim when they aren't there to defend themselves. The same day that Lamarcus Davison was arrested in Knoxville, his brother, Latelvis Cobbins, along with his friends, George Thomas and Vanessa Coleman, were arrested at a house belonging to a woman named Natasha Hayes, back in Lebanon, Kentucky. As a result of the search of her home, law enforcement seized a computer and it revealed that Thomas and Cobbins had been searching and viewing the Knoxville news coverage of Shannon and Christopher's murders. They also found a red purse that contained documents and various personal effects that belonged to Shannon. A 22 caliber revolver was also recovered from the home. The autopsies that were conducted on Christopher and Shannon's bodies were done by Dr. Dorinka Polchan. Dr. Polchan determined the extent of both of their injuries and their causes of death and noted that neither victim had any defensive wounds and that their stomachs were empty, meaning that they had not eaten for several hours before they were murdered. Okay, dreamers, so the details of the autopsy are very graphic, and I mean very graphic. Some of you already know the extent of the injuries that Christopher and Shannon suffered, and some of you may not. If you wish to skip this portion, you will need to fast forward for about six minutes starting now. Christopher Newsom was anally penetrated one to two hours prior to his death. He had a tremendous amount of injuries to both his anal and genital areas, including lacerations, tearing, and bruising. He was shot three times, each time with a small caliber bullet. One bullet was shot from approximately two to three feet away and entered his body in the neck area between the back of his neck and the shoulder. The second shot was to his lower back, and this bullet traveled steeply upward, an indication that he was bent over when the weapon was fired. This second shot caused severe damage to Christopher's spinal cord and immediately paralyzed him. The third, final, and fatal shot was fired with the muzzle of the gun pressed up against Christopher's head right above his right ear. This shot severed his brain stem and resulted in immediate death. All three bullets remained lodged in Christopher's body. Christopher had a hematoma on his right forehead, indicating that he was struck with an object or he fell hitting his head on the ground. This could have occurred when he was shot while he was bent over. When the fatal shot was fired, Christopher's head was wrapped in a gray hooded sweatshirt. A blue bandana was tied around his eyes. A sock was rolled up and stuffed into his mouth. 
and the sock was held in place with the shoelace tied around his head. Christopher's own belt, along with some fabric with a floral design, were tied around his ankles, binding them together. Some plant material was found tangled in the ankle bindings. Christopher's wrists were tied behind his back with a shoelace and some nylon. He was wearing a t-shirt, a shirt, and underwear. He had on no other clothing, nor did he have on any socks or shoes. His feet were muddy, an indication that he was walked to the area where he was murdered. Christopher was then placed on his back, a comforter was wrapped around his body, an accelerant was poured on him, and he was set on fire. His face, head, and upper body sustained the worst burns. Christopher's anus did have semen in it, but because of the high temperature of the fire, the DNA was destroyed. Soil samples taken from near Christopher's body revealed that the accelerant used to set him on fire was gasoline. A gasoline can was later found in Davidson's kitchen. I will talk about who is suspected of having been the one to rape Christopher a little bit later. And now, Shannon's injuries. The medical examiner noted that Shannon's frenulum, which is a membrane in the mouth that connects the lip to the gum, was torn. She had bruises and abrasions around her mouth. It was determined that these injuries occurred hours before her death and were caused by an object being forced into her mouth, an object such as a penis. One or two hours before her death, Shannon's genital and anal area had suffered a tremendous amount of damage. Her vaginal area had bruises, lacerations, contusions, swelling, and a solid blood clot had formed under the entire area. The depth and extent of the injuries to her vaginal area was so deep that it could not have been caused having been only raped. These injuries were caused by blunt force trauma, meaning a blunt object being used that came in contact with her genital area with a significant amount of force causing the infliction of these deeply severe injuries. Either the area was beaten with an object or Shannon was kicked really hard. Shannon had bruises on the backs of both of her arms, bruising on both sides towards the top of her head, and there was extensive hemorrhaging. She had bruises on the front of her legs, deep bruising on her upper back, close to her neck, carpet burns and scratches on her lower back and upper buttocks. She also had a cut on her right hand that occurred close to the time of her death. Shannon's body was forced into a very tight fetal position. Her head, neck, and shoulders were twisted and pressed up against her knees. Her left cheek was also pressed tightly against her knee. Strips of a curtain panel had been tied around her ankles and wrapped around her neck. A piece of floral fabric matching the one used to bind Christopher was tied around her thighs to bring them in tightly against her chest. A white plastic bag had been placed over her head, which covered her mouth and nose, and was knotted tightly in the back. Her body was then placed in five garbage bags, stuffed into a garbage can, and then covered with bed linens, sheets, and other bags. The only clothing that she had on was a camisole and a sweater. The plastic bag tied around her face, as well as the position that she was placed in in the confined space of the garbage can, caused Shannon to suffocate to death. So, yes, she was still alive when all of this was happening to her. Her time of death was estimated to have been sometime between the afternoon of Sunday, January 7th, and the afternoon of Monday, January 8th. 
Based on the plastic bag covering her face, her position inside the garbage can, the amount of oxygen around her face would have depleted within 10 to 30 minutes after she was placed inside the can. Once her oxygen depleted, Shannon would have died within three to five minutes. As for the DNA evidence found on and in Shannon's body, Lamarcus Davidson's sperm was found in Shannon's vagina, anus, and on her genes. Latalvis Cobbin's sperm was found in Shannon's mouth and on her camisole, sweater, and jeans. Bleach was found on Shannon's camisole, indicating that at least her face and mouth were doused with bleach in an effort to destroy DNA evidence. The fabric that was found with Christopher's body that was also used to bind Shannon came from the curtains and bedding that Ethel Freeman had given to Lamarcus Davidson. And I believe that's just about the most graphic parts that we are going to talk about in this episode. As for fingerprint evidence, I mentioned earlier that Davidson's fingerprint was found on a bank envelope in Shannon's SUV. His prints were also found on three of the five plastic garbage bags that Shannon's body was placed in. His palm print was found on the outermost exterior garbage bag, and this print was consistent with Davidson having been the one to lift the bag with the weight of Shannon's body in it. His right palm print and two left palm prints were found on the next garbage bag. The third garbage bag also had his palm print. Davidson's prints were also found on the items that belonged to Shannon and Christopher that were found in his house, including the pay stub that belonged to Shannon, the pictures that she had inside her vehicle, and Davidson's prints were also found on a box of garbage bags found in the kitchen. Ballistics testing on the bullets recovered from Christopher's body revealed that two of the bullets were fired from the same gun. The third bullet was too damaged, so it could not be determined what gun it came from. The bullets could have been fired from the revolver that was found in Davidson's possession when he was arrested. However, the revolver that was found with Cobbins in Kentucky was eliminated as the murder weapon. So let's stop here for a moment and talk about who and how much each person involved in this is culpable in these crimes. At least based on what we know thus far, it is clear that the one who seems to have the most forensic evidence against him is the person who rented the house that all of this took place in, Lamarcus Davidson. It was his house. His prints were found on everything. His semen was found in and on Shannon's body. All of the evidence points to him having the most to do with everything that happened to Shannon. And it was likely that it was his gun that was used to kill Christopher. Everything that was used to bind the victims came from him as well. So we will place him at the top as being the leader of this entire thing. Next up, it seems like his brother Latalvis Cobbins played a significant role in the crime, as his semen was also found in and on Shannon's body. And seeing as though his was found in her mouth, it was likely he was the one that doused her with the bleach in order to destroy the evidence. When it comes to the others, George Thomas, Vanessa Coleman, and Eric Boyd, we will know more about their involvement as we go along here but it appears, for the most part, that they had somewhat less involvement in what happened. They were there, they may have helped or they may have gone along, but as far as DNA or fingerprint evidence, there wasn't anything that linked them directly to each victim. However, it has been strongly suggested through circumstantial evidence that Eric Boyd was likely the one who raped Christopher, but I will come back to that. On January 31st, 2007, 
Four out of the five people involved in this crime were charged on a total of 46 counts related to Shannon and Christopher's murders for three of them and 40 counts for one of them. The fifth person would be charged later on in federal court and then more than a decade after the fact in state court. So we will go over each of them individually. Lamarcus Davidson, Latalvis Cobbins, and George Thomas were indicted on 16 counts of felony murder in relation to the rape, robbery, kidnapping, and theft of Shannon and Christopher, as well as two counts of premeditated murder, two counts of aggravated robbery, four counts of aggravated kidnapping, two counts of theft, and 20 counts of aggravated rape. Cobbins had an additional charge added on in this case, which was assaulting a correctional officer while he was waiting in jail pending trial. Vanessa Coleman faced 40 counts, including 12 counts of felony murder in relation to the rape, robbery, kidnapping, and theft of Shannon and Christopher, one count of premeditated murder of Shannon, one count of aggravated robbery of Christopher, four counts of aggravated kidnapping, two counts of theft, and 20 counts of aggravated rape. Eric Boyd was arrested for his involvement in the carjacking. He was not indicted along with the others by the Knox County Grand Jury in 2007, but he was indicted by a federal grand jury and tried separately. The federal charges that he faced were being an accessory after the fact for his assistance in helping the other four evade law enforcement. However, in 2018, he was indicted at the state level for his involvement in the kidnapping, rape, and murders of Shannon and Christopher. Later on, George Thomas and Latalvis Cobbins accused Boyd of raping and murdering Christopher. Eric Boyd would be the first convicted in federal court on April 16, 2008, having been found guilty as an accessory to a fatal carjacking and for failing to disclose the location of a known fugitive. Of the five of them, he would be the one not charged with murder, at least not yet. He was given the maximum sentence of 18 years in federal prison. He got close to his release date, which would have been in 2022, but it was not going to be the end of his legal troubles. We'll come back to him in a few minutes. On August 25, 2009, Latalvis Cobbins was found guilty of the first-degree murder of Shannon and guilty of the facilitation of the murder of Christopher, but was acquitted of raping him. The next day, Cobbins, who was facing a possible death sentence, was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. On October 28, 2009, Lamarcus Davidson was found guilty of the first-degree murders and premeditated murders of Shannon and Christopher, the four capital charges for which he was sentenced to death. In June of 2010, he received an additional 80 years for all the other charges related to the case, the rape, the robbery, theft, all of those charges, which were to be served consecutively with the death sentences. On December 8, 2009, George Thomas was found guilty of the first-degree murders and the premeditated murders of Shannon and Christopher, for which he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. As for Vanessa Coleman, the only woman charged in this case, she was granted immunity at the federal level for her testimony against Eric Boyd for the carjacking case. However, her immunity did not apply to the charges she would be made to face at the state level. On May 13, 2010, Coleman was acquitted of the first-degree murder charges, but found guilty on all the lesser charges that she was facing related to the kidnapping, theft, and robbery of Shannon and Christopher. She was sentenced to 53 years in prison. 
And with that, everyone who had had a hand in the kidnapping, robbery, rape, and murder of Shannon and Christopher were sentenced and in prison. The one we talked about having the role of the ringleader in all of this was the only one sentenced to death. Two others were going to die in prison without ever any chance of parole, and the others would be behind bars for a very long time, if not forever. End of story? Not so fast. If you recall at the beginning of this story, I told you about disgraced former judge Richard Baumgartner. Well, while the four defendants were convicted at the state level were appealing their cases, the judge that had sentenced all of them, Baumgartner, resigned in March of 2011 after admitting to not only being addicted to drugs, but to purchasing prescription pills from the defendants he convicted in his court. And, of course, he was also accused of trading favors for sex. I mentioned that this put all of the cases that he presided over, particularly during his final two years on the bench, and this included the trials of Lamarcus Davidson, Latalvis Cobbins, George Thomas, and Vanessa Coleman. Baumgartner's disbarment became final in October of 2011, and then on December 1st, 2011, all four defendants convicted in the kidnapping, rape, and murder of Shannon and Christopher were granted new trials by Judge John Carey Blackwood. The Tennessee Bureau of Investigation found evidence that it was most likely Baumgartner was under the influence of drugs while presiding over their trials. The decision to grant the four defendants new trials would be appealed by the state, and while that was going on, the only one who was eligible for bail was Vanessa Coleman, and that was set at $1 million. And so I'm pretty sure she wasn't going to go anywhere. And you know, Davidson was the only one who was eligible for the death penalty that was actually sentenced to death. The other two who had been eligible, Thomas and Cobbins, they were both sentenced to life without parole. So as the law is written, and you may have heard it before, it's called double jeopardy. In their second trials, those who weren't initially sentenced to death cannot be given a sentence any harsher than the one they received in their first trial. So the death penalty was off the table for both of them, leaving Davidson the only one eligible for the death penalty the second time around. The state appealed the decision to retry Davidson, Cobbins, and Thomas, but not Coleman. Hers was not appealed. But Judge Blackwood's decision was affirmed in April of 2012. But the following month, in May of 2012, the Tennessee Supreme Court overturned the judge's order for new trials for Davidson, Cobbins, and Thomas. The next month, the prosecution filed a motion to have Judge Blackwood recused from the case, which was granted, and Judge Walter Kurtz was appointed the new trial judge, and it would be up to him if the defendants were going to be retried. Ultimately, Judge Kurtz denied retrials for Cobbins and Davidson, but he granted new trials for Thomas and Coleman. On November 20, 2012, Vanessa Coleman, facing the same charges as in her first trial, was convicted of facilitation of kidnapping, facilitation of rape, and the facilitation of the murders of Shannon and Christopher. All of these convictions were less serious than her first ones, and she was sentenced to 35 years in prison. With her credits for time served, she became eligible for parole in 2014. There was a great deal of public outcry over the possibility of her being released on parole, and as of that time, she had only served 30% of her sentence. A change.org petition circulated, and it got more than 321,000 signatures. Coleman was up for parole again in 2019, 
but a judge blocked her from going up for parole again. Her next parole hearing will be this year, in December of 2020. Her sentence will be completed on December 20th, 2036. Today, Vanessa Coleman is being housed at the Tennessee Prison for Women. She is 31 years old, and her sentence will expire when she is 48. On May 17, 2013, George Thomas was convicted for a second time on all counts. He was sentenced to life in prison again, but this time with the possibility of parole after 51 years. But then the next month, Judge Kurtz sentenced Thomas to two life sentences, but he ordered those to be served consecutively, meaning he won't be going up for parole. He has to die first. Thomas appealed his conviction to the United States Supreme Court in 2016, but they refused to hear his case. Today, George Thomas is 37 years old and is being housed at the Northeast Correctional Complex in Mountain City, Tennessee. It is noted that his sentence is set to expire in 2053 when he is 70 years old, but he still has those two concurrent life sentences hanging over his head. More than 11 years after Shannon and Christopher were murdered, a Knox County grand jury came back with a 36-count indictment against Eric Boyd, the one who had been sentenced to 18 years in federal prison for the carjacking. He was brought back to Tennessee from where he was serving his time at the Federal Correctional Institution in Yazoo City, Mississippi, to face charges including first-degree felony murder, first-degree premeditated murder, aggravated robbery, aggravated kidnapping, and aggravated rape. Now, two of the other defendants in the case have said that Boyd is the one who raped Christopher. And I mentioned that there was semen found in his body, but the heat of the fire made it impossible to test for the DNA. The only other circumstantial evidence that pointed to Boyd having been the one to commit this act is the fact that his cell phone was searched and he had images of gay pornography in his phone and in his search history. He was found guilty on all of the charges except for robbery on August 13, 2019. He was sentenced to two life sentences to be served concurrently for the felony murder charges, plus an additional 90 years for the rest of the charges. Today, Boyd is 48 years old. Where he is going to be housed is still pending because his conviction is recent, but he will never be released from prison. As for Latalvis Cobbins, today he is 38 years old and being housed at the Northwest Correctional Complex in Tiptonville, Tennessee. He will die in prison. And Lamarcus Davidson, today he is 38 years old, and he is being housed at the Riverbend Maximum Security Institution in Nashville, Tennessee. He does not have an execution date set, but Tennessee, unlike California, is actively carrying out its death warrants, its most recent execution having been on February 20, 2020. Convicted murderer Nicholas Todd Sutton was executed by electric chair. Though he was in prison for the murder of his grandmother 40 years earlier, he was sentenced to death for killing a fellow inmate in 1985. So all things considered, seeing as it was 35 years between the crime and the punishment for Sutton, it may likely be another 20 or more years before Davidson is put to death, unless he halts his appeals. His last appeal was denied, and his death sentence was upheld in 2016. There has been some speculation that this case did not garner a great deal of media attention because of the victims being white, while the five people charged and convicted of these crimes were black. The thought is, 
is if the situation were reversed, if the victims had been black and the defendants were white, then the media would have been more involved in covering the case. Most of the news and reporting on the case was conducted mainly by the local media in Tennessee. There just didn't seem to be the kind of public outrage as there was, for example, when Jasper, Texas resident James Byrd was brutally murdered in 1998 by three white men who dragged him behind their truck for three miles until he died about halfway through the dragging when his arm and his head were severed from his body. That case made national headlines and led to changes that brought about defined hate crime laws. When something like this happens to an African-American person, advocacy groups such as the NAACP, as well as outspoken civil rights activists such as Jesse Jackson or Benjamin Crump, they come forward and they gain a great deal of media attention nationwide for the case. When Shannon and Christopher were murdered, the groups that came forward to bring about attention were white supremacy groups. But the issue at hand here is this. Were Shannon and Christopher murdered because they were white? Clearly, in the example I referenced a moment ago with the murder of James Byrd, that crime was motivated by race and hate. The defendants made no secret of that. But were the murders of Shannon and Christopher a hate crime? And was their story ignored because of a biased media? This crosses over into areas that I don't particularly care to address on the show, but to me, the crimes committed against Shannon and Christopher don't really appear on the surface to be racially motivated, simply based on the circumstances leading up to the crimes and what was going on with the defendants and the fact that it all seemed to happen so randomly. It felt like more of a crime of opportunity than anything else. It could have been anybody standing on that street next to a car that those people wanted to carjack. And in looking at the backgrounds of those who committed these crimes against Shannon and Christopher, by all accounts, none of them really ever had any issues with white people. They all said they had white friends, they socialized with, they dated white people. There was never any evidence in their backgrounds that would have supported the idea that they did this because they hated white people. But then some would say, just simply look at the crime itself here in the murders of Shannon and Christopher. The levels of violence and brutality that were inflicted on the two victims are indicative of a crime being fueled by hate. That if this isn't a hate crime, then what is? That this is a crime that started off as a carjacking and morphed into this group of people taking out their hate and rage on their victims. That this is inherently a crime of hate just by definition. That the things the perpetrators did to Shannon and Christopher, you really have to hate somebody to do that. However, the then president of the Knoxville chapter of the NAACP addressed this by saying that this isn't a black and white issue, it's a right and wrong issue. That these people should not have committed this crime and they needed to be punished for it. I read an article in the Seattle Times from June of 2007 by Howard Witt, and it was entitled, When a Hate Crime is Not Black and White. It's important to acknowledge that what happened to Shannon and Christopher was brutal and violent. What they were made to endure is a terror that most of us could not even begin to comprehend. But as I have been discussing for the past few minutes, whether or not their attack rose to the levels of a hate crime that should have garnered media attention across the United States, not just in East Tennessee, it threw into question whether or not this was a hate crime and the manner in which the mainstream media decides how they're going to cover interracial crimes. 
The stories in the media that we usually hear about that come out of the South are typically ones where whites are targeting blacks, and the media is typically quick to jump to the conclusion that race was the motive. In Shannon and Christopher's case, the races were flipped. It was blacks targeting whites, and that this was some sort of blatant example of an anti-white hate crime being suppressed. And some believe that the reason for this is that the media is uncomfortable with stories when it comes to black perpetrators who commit crimes against white victims. And because this case doesn't fit the narrative the mainstream media wants to push, there is a hesitation to cover the story. Comparisons are made to the heavily covered and widely reported case that happened the year prior to Shannon and Christopher's death, the 2006 Duke Lacrosse case out of Durham, North Carolina. Many of us remember this case, in which three players on the Duke University lacrosse team, David Evans, Colin Finnerty, and Reed Siegelman, all of them white, were falsely accused by a woman named Crystal Magnum, a black student at North Carolina Central University who worked as a dancer at a party the lacrosse team was hosting. The case sparked a nationwide conversation regarding racism, sexual violence, and media bias. Ultimately, all the charges were dropped as a result of the accuser's inconsistencies, her changing stories, a lack of evidence, as well as misconduct on the part of the prosecutor on the case, who was ultimately disbarred as a direct result of his conduct in his attempts to prosecute this case. Though the alleged victim, Crystal, has maintained that she was sexually assaulted the night of the lacrosse team party. This case, less than a year before Shannon and Christopher's, was extensively covered across the United States, which is in stark contrast to their murder case. Some have said that if this was a white-on-black crime, then civil rights leaders and activists would have been all over it. But when the white supremacists jumped into the fray right there in Tennessee, where the Ku Klux Klan was founded in 1865, they were organizing rallies steeped in hate themselves, eager to spew their racial diatribes. And in making things worse, rumors were being spread that Shannon and Christopher's bodies were sexually mutilated. Things like Christopher's penis was severed, as was one of Shannon's breasts, and this simply wasn't true. It was all meant to incite. Shannon and Christopher's murders were being used by white supremacist groups to attempt to push the narrative that this was a hate crime, and that the lack of media attention on the case was proof of that. But they were using lies and rumors, and they were exploiting the victims' deaths to do so. My opinion on this... I don't think it was a hate crime, how we think of a hate crime, but I do think the media stayed away because it was likely going to be thought of as a hate crime, and they simply didn't want to be a part of pushing that narrative that would perpetuate racial stereotypes when it comes to violence, crime, and African Americans. And I think the media just wanted to avoid it. Should Shannon and Christopher have received more media attention? I really don't know the answer to that because it's hard to say how the media is going to see a story and decide whether to run with it or run away with it. But Shannon and Christopher's story continues to resonate with us today, and it is worth remembering, because it is very much a part of a very real and deep fear that each of us has when it comes to random crime. Just a young couple out for an evening of fun with each other, and friends to celebrate a birthday 
only to wind up carjacked, kidnapped, raped, tortured, and murdered. I think that's what stays with us the most. The randomness followed by the viciousness. And it is mainly because of the random nature of it that I didn't think it was racially motivated. What ended up happening to Shannon and Christopher, some say amounts to a crime of hate, and critics of the way the media handled their murders say it's an example of the media's hesitation to report on crimes when the victims are white and the perpetrators are black. And there is even more so hesitation to go ahead and label that crime a hate crime. It is a very touchy subject, though. But what needs to not be lost on all of us is the fact that any one of us could have been Shannon and Christopher. Two people doing what any of us could have been doing on any given Saturday night in any given neighborhood in the country. When they fell victim to people looking for an easy, vulnerable, unsuspecting target, no matter what color they were. Today, the Chipman Street house The place where Shannon took her last breath is no more. The waste management company that had a hub next door to the home purchased the property and it was demolished in 2009. A small memorial dedicated to the murdered couple is now in its place. And that will bring this episode of California Dreaming to a close. Please come on over to our Facebook discussion group if you haven't done so yet and request to join. It is there we discuss the cases that we cover, we share our thoughts and opinions, and I'd really like to hear your thoughts about this one and whether or not you think this was a hate crime or should have been defined as a hate crime. But we not only talk about our show, we talk about other podcasts that you listen to, documentaries that you've watched, books that you've read, as well as current news stories, posts about your pets, as well as funny memes please come on over and share. You can also go to the show's Facebook page and like that page and leave a review or a recommendation. You can also follow us on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. This week, I'd like to wish a happy birthday to Laura L. on April 10th, Janie D. on the 11th, Jen T., who is one of our page admins, on the 14th, also Anna P. on the 14th, Susan M. on the 16th, Heather S. on the 17th, and Melissa S. and Rich M. on the 19th. California Dreaming is brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network, a podcast production company on a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to, with an amazing roster of shows and content including true crime, history, sports, entertainment, gaming, and social media. So visit our website at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. You will find links to all of our podcasts as well as a direct link to our merchandise store on TeePublic. Again, that's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Thank you again so much for listening. I'm your host, Roseanne. Until next time, sweet dreams. Sweet dreams.